As we open our Bibles to the New Testament this evening, we come to a text we've considered not so long ago in our Sunday morning study of Matthew. We're coming to Matthew chapter 4, and our text will be verses 1 through 11. This is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and you may recall that this follows uh, the baptism of Jesus in Matthew's record, and it immediately precedes the, the announcement of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. But there is in between this time of temptation following a time of fasting in the wilderness. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray once more. Lord our God, we have in our text this record of our Savior being tempted by the evil one, and we know what it is to be tempted to sin. And in this temptation, we find the evil one is strategic. He comes in a time of weakness, at least physical weakness, as a result of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And he comes in a crafty way as a schemer to appeal to those natural desires and appetites that our Savior would have experienced. And in the face of this temptation... We find your Son, our Savior, the one who is true God and true man, obedient at every point, refusing temptation, and relying upon your word of truth and in insisting upon your glory. And now we have set before us the pattern for our own obedience, which must be rooted in our union with Christ in our having received the spirit of adoption by whom we call you our Father. We have the example of your strength given even in the attendance of angels unto our Savior. And so we have the strength of your care and the equipping of your word and spirit. And we ask that you would lead us in the way of truth according to your word and for your glory that we might live lives of obedience 
and performing those good works which you have prepared for us in advance, for which we are to be zealous. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned last week that as we have entered into this last section of the Heidelberg Catechism, our thankfulness is the title, we will find that it is largely made up of instruction regarding the law of God and in particular the Ten Commandments. There's also an address of the Lord's Prayer, but the bulk of this final section has to do with the Ten Commandments and what they mean. But before the Heidelberg Catechism launches into explanation of the commands, there is this emphasis upon the grace of redemption, which has already been thoroughly covered in the questions of the Catechism in the section on our deliverance, that middle section of the three. And yet here we find it is again emphasized that we are a people who are redeemed by the grace of God and through the work of Christ. And so why is there this emphasis again upon the grace of redemption? Well, this serves to remind us that we are not saved by our obedience to the law of God. Now that's a significant point for us for the catechism could have begun with the moral law of God and used that beginning to establish the fallen nature of humanity. It could have used the law of God to establish our disobedience and our need for redemption. But instead, the catechism waits for this full explication later on in its order. And so the early emphasis is upon what Christ has done so that we not become confused so that we not begin to think that our salvation, that our justification is built upon our rendering obedience to God in keeping his word. Now understand, I'll mention again as we mentioned last week, that the law of God is integral to our salvation. The law of God remains for us the expression of our God's character. The moral law of God helps us understand who our God is in the perfection of his being, and it does remain the standard which he requires of any who would be in, brought into his presence forevermore. He still requires perfect obedience. But our capacity to render that obedience has been destroyed in the Garden of Eden by our first parents when they violated the covenant of works made with them on our behalf. And so in the covenant of grace, what we find is that there is still this requirement of perfect obedience, but now there is a gracious provision of one who in our stead, the last Adam, will perfectly obey God so that his obedience might be accounted to us through faith. And so you and I are saved by works of obedience, but they're not our works, they're Christ's work. It's by his keeping the law of God, it's by his perfect covenant obedience that there is now a perfect righteousness accounted to us on the basis of which we are received by our God eternally and accepted by him. That in itself is worthy of our celebration. 
because it means we find our rest in Christ. That's what we come to do on the Lord's Day, to find our rest in Christ, to be recalibrated, to be reminded week by week, and we should be reminded day by day as we go to God's Word in devotion that we will never be saved by any good that we do. We are always and only saved by what Christ has done. And so we rest in Him, and we find our hope, and we find our blessing in Him. But there's another reason why the explanation of the Ten Commandments comes later. It's not just a matter of priority that we not think that we be saved by our good works. Because once we are redeemed, we are called to lives of good works and obedience but the fact is, until we have been born again of the Spirit of God, we can't do anything that would be considered good before God. We're incapable apart from the power of God working new life in us to do anything that would be pleasing to Him. And that's why the first three questions tonight address this matter of new life. The first question this evening, question 88, asks, what is true repentance or conversion of man? And the answer, it is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. That's what happens when we're born again, when we are regenerated by the power of God. The old man dies and we are granted new life. That's why scripture says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. The next question then asks, so what is this dying of the old nature? What does that mean? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. That's the dying of the old nature. It's what the Westminster Standards call repentance unto life. A saving grace whereby, out of a true sense of our sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, we do with grief and hatred of our sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's that dying and that living. And then, what is the coming to life of the new nature? It's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And let me say, none of this is natural. And that's why no one can do good works if they have not been born again of the Spirit of God. Because this is not natural. This is supernatural. This is something that is worked in us by a sovereign God whose Spirit is poured out upon us, bringing life where there has only been spiritual death, bringing union with Christ where there had been only enmity with God. The old nature must die and a new nature must be given for us to obey God. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we have this new life of union with Christ that now enables us to do what can biblically be called good works. So the real emphasis of this section of the catechism preceding the explanation of the Ten Commands uh, the Ten Commandments, is, is what good works are and how it is that we are fitted for them by God. So what are good works? How are they defined? The Catechism says only those which are done out of true faith. And so that's the first requirement for any work, 
for our obedience to be pleasing to God, that it be done out of true or real faith, first of all, those which are done in accordance with the law of God. The Lord doesn't leave us to determine what is good or what is bad. He has given us his law that we may know what is right and what is true. And these are works done to his glory. What is excluded are works based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. So we've read of the temptation of Jesus because I think in, in this brief recounting of Jesus facing Satan and temptation, we have a depiction of each of these points in terms of what it means to do what is good because the Lord Jesus is doing good here and honoring his Father. We begin by reading that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is not accidental. This is decreed by God. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And that's also significant because remember, the devil is a schemer. The scripture says that. The apostle Paul writes that several times in scripture. And as a believer in Christ, let me say, it is important that we know our spiritual areas of weakness. Because the evil one knows, and that's where he will attack. And that's where we will find sin at work in, in tempting us. Now here, there's a kind of physical weakness. The Lord Jesus is hungry after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter comes and says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he's appealing to a very natural appetite there. The evil one is. But it's interesting that he begins with that question really embedded in the temptation. If you are the Son of God. And that's very important for our consideration this evening because what we're taking up is this matter of our power through faith to do what is good before God. Now this temptation follows Jesus' baptism. And the Father had claimed His Son there. Audibly, there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's how chapter 3 of Matthew closes. And this claim has been laid, but the Lord Jesus didn't need cleansing from sin. He didn't need regeneration. He was true God and true man. Two distinct natures in one person, and yet there is this declaration of His being the Son of God. Made, And in his baptism, there's a demonstration of his identifying with us, his uniting with us in his submission to the will of his father in his undergoing the waters of baptism. But his life as the son of God was, was a life of true faith. He was and he is the living word and his life is lived in perfect obedience. And why? Because he is the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. His life is a life of perfect faith because he is the giver of faith to all who believe. But in his coming, remember, his great purpose in redemption is his glory in a people whom he will receive to himself. And that's important for our understanding of what it means to do works out of 
true faith. It is by our faith that we are united to Jesus Christ and belong to him. This call or claiming of a people is announced even in the Old Testament, in the books of Moses. We hear it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This redemption was worked according to the loving purpose of God so that he was claiming undeserving sinners to be his own people and he calls them a treasured possession. And this claim is extended in a messianic promise through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as declared in Ezekiel chapter 36. These words are so familiar we often turn to them. Where God says through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And to be careful to obey my rules. This claim that God places upon a people is being expanded by the promise of the giving of his spirit and the giving of a new heart. This is the promise of regeneration. And this is the power of God that works faith in our hearts. And it's through this power of the Holy Spirit that we are born again and then empowered to do what is pleasing to God, to offer him new works. The Spirit of God who comes with saving power comes with sanctifying power and dwells within us so that we are now children of God by regeneration and we are empowered through faith to walk in a new obedience of which we were not capable before being born again. Again, it's because we're the children of God. And the prologue to John tells us that he came to his own And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And even as the grace and truth of Jesus is celebrated, we have been told we have the right As children of God. Because we belong to him. And so, good works must be done out of true faith. Because apart from faith in Christ in union with him, we have no capacity to do good. But the Lord God has called us to good. He has empowered us for good. And as the children of God, this should be our great delight. That we serve him according to his will. And that's the second point. He has given us his will. So that we may know what is good. We may know what is good in accordance with the law of God. And we see that too. In this temptation that the Lord Jesus faces. 
the evil one comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But when Jesus answers, he goes immediately to the word of God. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil has a long history of distorting God's word and confusing evil for good. That's his scheme. That's his modus operandi. That's how he operates. We see that in the Garden of Eden when he comes tempting the man and the woman and he begins distorting what God has said. Has God surely said? He begins questioning and planting questions. That's why the Lord Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies in John chapter 8. And where God's word is distorted, or misrepresented or contested. We, God's people, must be led by his truth. And that's why we have to be diligent students of God's word so that we're not confused by the siren song of our culture. We're not even confused by the desires that are natural to our flesh, but corrupted by sin that remains within us. But instead, we are directed by the truth of God's word because by it, We are corrected against the impulses of our flesh and the loud voices of the culture in which we live that shout into our ears and seek to distract us or confuse us from what is right and good. God knows that weakness. And that's why he's given us his word. That's what we heard in Leviticus 2, that warning to the people of Israel. Moses was told to say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see, the word of God, the law of God is given for our good. And none of us can obey it perfectly. It is not the means of our justification that we should obey. Christ has kept it perfectly for us. But it is now for us a rule of life which we are to love. Because it shines as a light on the path of righteousness. It guards us against the dangers of darkness and paths which we might take that would lead to destruction. And this is why we have to know what is in the word of God. And we can't think that we've learned enough at some point in life, whatever age any of us may be. We have to continually be reoriented by the word of God's truth. And that's true for all of us, but let me speak to our children and our young people who are here today. Let me remind you again of what I've said. I said it this morning in the middle school Sunday school class. If you're old enough to read, you're old enough to read the Bible every day on your own. Is this about the 120th time you've heard me say this from this pulpit or a Sunday school lectern? Now understand, it is vitally important in every Christian household that fathers open Bibles every day and gather the family around the scripture. Uh, If you're not doing that, repent, repent, and make that a practice in your home. 
the, the defining identity of any Christian family must be God's word, the truth of the gospel. We have to be defined by the truth of God in our midst, by the power of the gospel, not by our work, our hobbies, our kids' hobbies. We must be identified by the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, and that is vitally important. But for you children, you, you're old enough to read. You need to start reading the Bible on your own every day. Because the time is going to come so quickly when you're not home with mom and dad anymore. It just comes so quickly. Uh, I'm reflecting on that. Jonah's got one year to go. Next spring, he should be done. I mean, assuming he keeps passing his classes, he should be done. And he'll be off on his own even more than he is now. That time comes so quickly. And if you don't know the truth of God, if you're not steep in it, if you're not learning it now, do you know how quickly you'll become confused? By what the culture is screaming into your ears? By the behavior of friends and classmates and teammates? But it's true for us as adults too, by our co-workers. We can be swayed, we can be confused, we can be dulled to God's truth by the prevailing ethos of the culture in which we live. And not just the broader culture at large, but the culture of the workplace. The culture of the classroom, the culture of the huddle and the sports team. Whatever it may be, we can... We can be confused, distracted, or dulled by the, the cultural ethos of the, the mini subculture in which each of us lives. And that's why we desperately need to know the word of God's truth. And when the evil one comes to the Lord Jesus and appeals to very basic natural appetites, even hunger, the Lord Jesus knows the word. And it's by that word that he pronounces the way of truth. And the warning that we heard this morning was not to go, and we've read it again this evening, not to go in the way of the people of Egypt or the way of the people of Canaan. That seems to be the path of least resistance. When your friends start entering into conversations, and you know those aren't conversations that you should be a part of. When they start uh, engaging in behaviors that may have a certain appeal to the flesh, but you know those aren't pleasing to God. You, you know they're ultimately destructive. You have to know the truth of God that directs you on the path of life because you can be so easily confused, dulled to what is right and true. Egypt can look good, especially if you feel as if you're in the wilderness. You can look back and remember the cucumbers, the leeks, and the melons. We heard that this morning. But we need the truth of God's word to point us to what is eternally valuable. What brings God honor. And that's the word of God and its truth directing us in the way of life. Psalm 19 testifies to this beauty of God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycombs. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That's to be the attitude of our hearts towards the word of God. It is to be sweet. It is to be light. It is to bring blessing. 
because if we're not led by the word of God's truth, if we're not empowered by his spirit to walk in the way of his truth and his light, then we will be led by something else. We'll be led by our flesh, our most basic impulses and instincts. We'll be led by the, the preferences and the whims of those around us who influence us. And the Apostle Paul explains this in Romans chapter 7. You may remember that chapter from our study of Romans some years ago. The Apostle Paul is, is pointing to the struggles that he has apart from Christ, but even the struggles that he has in Christ as one who is born again. And beginning at verse 14 in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul writes, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And with that wrestling against corruption, then what do we need? We need the law of God and the spirit of God. That we may be directed in the way of truth. And so our new life in Christ not only empowers our life of good works rendered unto God in obedience to his word but it informs that life of good works, directing us in the way of truth. And what is more, it motivates them. Because good works are not only those done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God, but they're done to His glory. And picking up in our text, we find that indicated also. When the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, the devil, said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He was determined to glorify only in his father and to give him alone glory and we read that the devil then left him and behold angels came and were ministering to him do you sometimes find it easy to rationalize your sin to make excuses for sin it can be very easy to explain our sin away to blame others for our sin if we're left to our own ideas we can establish our own standards our own ideas of what is right or what is good and we can establish a sliding scale upon which we compare ourselves to others. But our God has not left us to our own resources as we battle sin. 
And he's not given us that latitude to determine for ourselves what is right or what is true. He has regenerated us, giving us life and faith in Christ by which we are empowered to live lives of good works and obedience. And he's furnished us with his word so that we may know what is right and what is true. But he's given us this great aim, this great end in life, our chief end, which is to glorify him and enjoy him. And that purpose recalibrates the way we understand ourselves and how we live. And the evil one will attack us, and sin is at work in our flesh, attacking our weaknesses in our times of vulnerability, distorting what is right and true, appealing to our appetites. And among the greatest of our appetites is the desire for glory for ourselves. And we're reminded here that we are to be directed by zeal for the glory of God. And that's the third of these qualifications for works that are good that the catechism presents. And I want to say to you that that's the great antidote to our confusion. When we have been furnished with the word and the spirit of God so that we're directed in the way of truth, that third check upon our motivations is whose glory am I seeking in what I say, in what I do? What is the motivation? Is it my glory or my exaltation? Am I glorying in someone or something else other than God? Or am I focused upon exalting the one who alone I am to worship and to serve? It's a great test for us as we contemplate what may be good works in our lives and as we contemplate our motivation in the things that we do. In Psalm 105, uh, in the last week, we've, I've encouraged maybe the reading of Psalm 105 and 106 together that rehearse the history of God's faithful dealing with an unfaithful people, but his, his dealing with them with a redeeming love. That psalm begins with these words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. In all that he does, in all that he has called us to, the glory of his name is his great aim and it is to be our great aim. And the whole of our salvation is intended for the praise of his glorious grace. A beautiful doxology of Romans 11 comes to mind. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his ways beyond finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given anything to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That is to be the impulse of our lives. And the areas of your greatest gifting by God, those gifts have been given to you, not so that you may make much of yourself, but so that you may serve Him and make much of Him. So that you may serve others and make much of Him. And it's to this end that we're called to do the good works of obedience to which we are called, not that we may be well thought of, but that He may be glorified in us and through us. Now, it's easy for us to speak of people who are good people in a general sense. 
we understand that there is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. But when we have been redeemed by the grace of God, we are called to new life. And it is to be the life of good works. We don't get to define them. We don't get to seek our glory in them. But by the power of God's Spirit, we are strengthened for them, directed to them, that we may exalt his name as the one who is at work in us through whose righteousness alone we are saved. Now why is this so important as we launch into an explanation of the meaning of the Ten Commandments? It's important because we're prone to wander. We're prone to self-exaltation. We're prone to claim to ourselves a kind of righteousness by which we would think not only to impress others, but by which we might begin to think we somehow have earned salvation from God. Whose glory is gotten through that? It's not our own. It's not God's. It's our own. And what is our chief end? It is to honor and exalt him. Now, I'll ask of myself as I ask of you, is is that your desire? As we head into this week, whatever is set before you, whatever is on your family agenda, what is ever on your personal schedule, is your chief end to glorify God and to enjoy him this week? If so, how will you enjoy him? Only through faith. Only by living according to his word, by the power of that faith and life he's given you, and only as you live for his glory. That's our call. And that's to be our greatest delight. Let us pray.